Welcome to another edition of the Herefordshire Regiment's podcast, Just a Walk in the Sun. We've got quite a select crew around the table today. We've got four of the, uh, probably, the, I was going to say the best brains, but I think I'll continue <laughs> to say that. The best brains with the best knowledge of the Herefordshire Regiment. So we go around the table and ask everyone to introduce themselves. The Reverend Paul Roberts, Danny Rees. And James Hereford. So, oh, I suppose I've had to say who I am. I'm Andy Taylor and I'm the curator. Now, this is a special Christmas edition. So what we thought we would do, we would all wear silly hats. And yours looks lovely, Paul. Oh, well, <laughs> always fetching. I, I always channel the reindeer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what we're going to do, we invited each of us to just speak on uh, one of their favourite items in the museum. And then afterwards... We're each going to pose a question to the others. And so we'll really test to see how good everyone's knowledge is. Mm. Ooh, but, so. and, and, and there's a little bit of a competition element, isn't there, Andy? We're playing for the sparkliest. It's a very sort of Strictly Come Dancing style Santa's hat. It, it really is, Paul. And I, I don't know which one of your children <laughs> you stole it from, but they're going to be very disappointed. Well, it's complete with the Herefordshire Regimental cap badge and the winner will get to, will get to wear that. So there we go. That's it. So there's, there's an incentive. To an everybody. incentive for something. <laughs> and we've also got the the museum Christmas. Well, what do we call him? Welfare the, mascot. Yeah, the mascot there, who's uh, a cuddly reindeer, moose. Well, there was there, there was a little bit of discussion before we started recording as to whether it was a um, whether it was a reindeer, whether it was an antelope, and would be associated with the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. But we've decided it's definitely a reindeer, and it's definitely a. Definitely a Hereford's reindeer because well, it is sporting the badge as a Hereford ally. So, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. We we realise this isn't the best thing for um, audio uh, medium, but we will post pictures of all this on the website later, so you can join right. in the festive spirit. <laughs> Laugh at our insanity. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to start then? I think we'll start with the. Um, I was going to say the best looking, but then I, I really shouldn't go first. So, Paul, how do you fancy starting? <laughs> the second best looking. Okay, fair enough. Well. I, I wanted to talk about a, an item an item of uniform that we've got in the museum, which is the uh, drum major's dress belt or sash. And it's an absolutely fabulous, it's an absolutely fabulous piece. It goes over the shoulder quite, if you imagine a, if you imagine a sash, you know, you might have, I don't know, Miss World sash or something like that. Much broader than that. I'm getting strange looks I around. Really <laughs> <are>. <laughs> um, but uh, it runs, runs over from the left shoulder and runs, runs down. And I think it probably dates from about 1927 when the band yep. received um, a load of new uniforms and equipment. And it's got King George V's cipher on. It, it's green in colour. Then with they're starting to fade now the, the colours, but I, it's a, it's a sort of goldy silvery um, brocade. Yep. And symbol of the Herefordshire Regiment, the, uh, the the lion with the sword, and then the battle honours as well. And also on top are two ceremonial drumsticks to to you know show that this is the this is the drum major. And I think for me this is one of my favourite pieces because really the the drums and the band were the beating heart of the regiment. Mm. You'd have seen this person uh, marching out in front. Uh, he'd have had a mace as well that he'd have used to set the tempo and to, to conduct, and we've got the mace yeah, as, have, uh, yeah. as well in the museum. 
and the, the the drum major was uh, you know, played a really important part in in, in any regiment really uh, for for centuries. They were always looking after the you know they had to look after the drummers to defend the drummers and the bandsmen. That was one of their traditional roles, but also military discipline as well. Mm. If you were in the days of giving lashes to to unfortunate soldiers who did did wrong things, it was the um, it was the drum uh, major that was in charge of that. And now, now, when you say lashings, Paul, I know it's Christmas. Were you talking about lashings of rum or yours? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the rum will come later. No, I think these. Um, I think no, certainly you could be sentenced to yeah to sort of forty lashes and you oh, know really mm. quite um, nasty punishments, but. The beat of the the beat of that would be beaten out yeah. by the by the drummers, yeah. um, and it's where we get the phrase to be drummed out of. If you're drummed yeah. out of somewhere, that comes from that, this role. But uh, certainly by the certainly by the 1920s, um, the, uh, the 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 territorials of Herefordshire weren't receiving those sort of lashes. They may well around this time of year they may well have been receiving um, lashes of, of, of rum. I just love that image of the of the band marching and people hearing the, the band coming and that sense of excitement. And of course, a great recruitment tool as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And I think we've actually got a photograph of drum sergeant major Faulkner actually wearing that, um, that sash, yeah. which is tremendous. In fact, we'll, we'll find that out and we'll um, put on the um, on the website. It's hung in the officer's mess, if I remember correctly, on the wall there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It's got the the, the regimental um, the battle honours as well for the First World War, which helps us to date it. Of course, mm. there's the there's South Africa 1901 1902 on there from the volunteers days, but of course there are then the 17 honours yeah. on there. Uh, all those battles fought by the Herefordshire Regiment, um, which of course carried on the carried on the on the um, on the colours, but also on that sash as well. Wonderful piece. That's certainly my. That, that's well, certainly my well done. I, I, I think probably uh, Paul deserves a, a, a very small round of applause. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> James, would you like to do your piece? Thank you. Yes, uh, I think the Dernitz pennant is what I would go for. It symbolises the campaign of Northwest Europe in 1944-45, when the Herefordshire Regiment um, took part and was uh, in, involved in the. Uh, capture of Dernitz uh, when the uh, puppet government was removed on on the 23rd of May 1945 uh, and they actually took his penance uh, into safe custody and, and they still are to this day in Sobler Barracks. Uh, but it, as I said, it, it amplifies the, the, the campaign which started, of course, on the 6th of June 1944 and on the 13th of June, D plus 7, the Herefordshire Regiment landed in uh, Normandy as part of the 11th Armoured Division. And the interesting part is that the 11th Armoured Division was formed in 1942. The Herefordshire Regiment's 159 Brigade in, in 53rd Division were selected to become the infantry within 23rd Armoured Brigade, 11th Armoured Division. And in fact, interestingly enough, again, of the four infantry battalions uh, in 11th Armoured Division, three of them would, would have been part of the rifles today. Mm. That is 4th Kersalai, 1 Hereford Delai, and 8th Rifle Brigade. Mm. Uh, and the, the 11th Armoured Division, as I said, was form, formed in 42, originally commanded um, by Major General Percy Hobart, who was a, a famous uh, armoured commander. He had been in the Royal Tank Regiment during the First World War, and commanded what eventually became 
Seventh Armoured Division in the, in the desert mm. uh, prior uh, early on in the war, and he was a fairly cantankerous guy, <laughs> and, and he was removed from there and, and sent off in retirement, and was brought back out of retirement by Winston Churchill to form and command 11th Armoured Division. And the, the story about him is that he was once asked subsequently uh, something recipe for his success, and he is alleged to have said to be sufficiently insubordinate. <laughs> Excellent. But I think he designed or instigated the design of, of uh, lots of unusual tanks, didn't he? Flail tanks and things. Funnies. Which were known as Hobart's Funnies. Indeed he did, because he went on from commanding the 11th Armoured Division to form and train 79th Armoured Division, which indeed was... The, the Hobart's Funnies. Yeah. Uh, 11th Armoured Division was overwhelmingly a, a territorial army and wartime only division. Uh, in fact, the only regular unit initially was the 3rd Royal Tank Regiment. Subsequently, the 1st Battalion, the Cheshires, and the 1519th Hussars uh, moved in when 3rd Monmouthshire Regiment uh, was eventually d d disbanded after it had run out of troops, really. The 11th Armoured Division was probably the best armoured division in Northwest Europe. And interestingly, the commander of the British Second, Ar Second Army, General Sir Miles Dempsey, wrote of the division in '45, the 11th Armoured Division proved itself throughout the campaign in Northwest Europe to be an outstandingly fine division. I have never met a better. And another comment from Basil, Sir Basil Little Hart, who was a light infantryman himself in the First World War in the Kerwalai, and he was one of the most foremost his, historians of his generation. And in his book, The Tanks, he says, within a few months, the 11th Armoured Armour achieved a reputation in Europe, matching that which the <coughs> long famous 7th Armoured Division mm. gained in Africa. Mm. Oh. And that says something, I think. But yeah, it certainly does, mm. yeah. And, it, and I mean, it was a new concept as well, the, the armoured division, which was all, the, the forerunner of the all-armed unit, d yeah. d d battle group almost. So, yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was really uh, <coughs> new stuff. Mm. And, and indeed, w w when they got into Northwest Europe, actually, the second commander, um, Pip Roberts, who had been commanding a brigade in, commanded a brigade in, 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 in North Africa, he changed the whole concept. And in fact, instead of having an infantry, a lorry infantry brigade and an armoured brigade, he split them up. So in fact, they had two armoured brigades, mm. uh, two armoured regiments in each and two infantry yeah. battalions mm. in each. And that was the way they fought their way through through northwest Europe. And it certainly worked. Mm. Yeah, mm. Good. Oh, well, thank you very much mm. for that, James. Again, a round of applause. Round of applause. <laughs> Danny. <laughs> Well, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here because oh, I haven't heard. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, have we got any curveballs? No, like, yeah. okay, let's see the QM and see if he's got some in stock. He's got one <laughs> an example for over though. That's actually our most second most recent acquisition. It's actually going to be the Boar Mauser. Ah, ah. It's a current, uh, it's a it's current favourite. I'm sure it'll change by next week. It might be worth explaining what. A boar, a boar is and what a mauser <laughs> is. <laughs> well, that's all part of it. Well, it, interesting about it is actually it's a German-built rifle. Now, that's made by the Mauser Works in actually in Germany itself in 1896. And what's interesting about it is, yeah, it's just a normal German rifle. But these were actually purchased by the South African government and actually made available to farmers in, in well, the 1890s. Actually, just as a, a civilian marksmanship program. But what was quite revolutionary about it 
was because when obviously when the Second Boer War came along in 1899, you had at least 10,000 rifles in, in, in public hands where they'd been trained on, they were expert marksmen, and they knew the ground. So you actually had a very capable force. When you read about the Boer War, a lot of people put the farmers down, saying, oh, they were just a, just a rabble. But actually, they were very good marksmen, and they, they knew the ground. And why it's revolutionary, I think, this rifle, is actually it made the British military change its complete concept of war fighting. Mm. And that's purely due to one modification. The charger loading bridge. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of you out there are probably going, what, what's a charging loading bridge? What's all this about the Royal Engineers. <laughs> <laughs> well, to take a step back, British military concept at the time, as those of you who've watched Zulu and Zulu Dawn, was one round at a time, all put in by commander, the officer, or the NCO. You know, if you were lucky, you were allowed to open up your little plate on your rifle and open up to the magazine, a magazine that contained 10 rounds which you could load and fire as dictated by the officer. But the Boers noticed with the German rifles at the time, they actually had this small modification where you could speed load or put in very quickly five rounds on a preformed steel clip, which you then dispose of. And it allowed the Boer farmer to load and fire his rifle extremely quickly and not require on orders of an officer with one round at your target in front in your own time go on. So, so, Danny, you loaded them through the, effectively, the breech without taking the magazine off. Is that right? Yeah, well, the, the British rifles at the time had a magazine, and this was connected to the rifle by a small chain. So you'd have a spare magazine with you. So you'd actually have 20 rounds which you'd load by magazine, but then you'd have to load each round individually at a time, whereas right. the boar farmer, he could actually put five rounds in quickly through the top of his weapon, opening the bolt, put the rounds in through the top quickly, and put the weapon back into action very quickly. Yeah. Thus, he had a, he had a, um, a advantage over the British soldier who had to open his pouch, take one round out, put it in, close the bolt, fire the fire the rifle, open the bolt, take another round out of the pouch. Whereas he had five after the initial engagement, where they actually used the magazine. And that's why I think it's my favourite item, is because it it's it's one of the few times in the early days, anyway, with the British military realised that the enemy actually had a greater advantage on them and their timers. And, and certainly that charger, I mean, I remember, uh, the, I think the number four rifle in the, would be the late 1970s or mid-1970s, we had to practice with uh, loading the uh, the chargers because it was a rimmed round. You Rim had to lock. get one up, one down, one up, one down. But, yeah. yeah, it's quite interesting, especially after the Boer War. There's actually an urgent um, requirement went out to have all the Lee Metford and Long Lee rifles modified to have this charger bridge put in, and it was an urgent requirement. So all these old early rifles, where single loading rifles, were modified to have this bridge put on, but also they removed the chain off the magazine so soldiers could actually change their magazine quickly. But then by the First World War. The second magazine had totally gone, so all it was done by chargers. So a soldier would be issued 190 rounds on stripper clips, or 120 if he didn't have a bandolier, and then he'd put everything by charge. So your mass production of the First World War, you didn't have to rely on extra equipment. You see, literally, any man could have chargers and load their weapons. Right. I mean, actually, I, I, I've been to the First World War battlefields quite often and, and seen 303 cases on the ground. I don't think I've ever seen... Chargers, and they must have been 
millions yeah. of them because mm. they were steel and they rotted away and they were very flimsy it was it was cheap and economical as, as today with the current rifleman he'll have magazines loaded with 30 rounds in those days the stripper clips were seen as or charger clips given the correct things were just cheap throwaway items yeah. you know mm. cheap mass produced but enabled the, the you know you could issue out a, a bandolier and load everyone could load a weapon really quickly i think that's why i like the bore 1896 okay. Mauser. Right. Change. Thank, thank you very much for that danny <laughs> We knew you would talk about <laughs> weapons or something technical, but well done. <laughs> sure. Right, now it's on to me then. My item, first appearance, is very ordinary. It's a Territorial Force Efficiency Medal, George V issue. And these were issued for 12 years service. But this particular medal goes back to the formation of the Herefordshire Regiment in 1908. And it was awarded to the Quartermaster Sergeant, Wilfred Moore. And the unusual thing about it is that the quartermaster's number was number one. <laughs> he was the senior soldier in the battalion when it formed in 1908. Now you might ask, but none of you did, but I'll tell you in any <laughs> case, why was the quartermaster sergeant the senior man? Mm. Well, the regimental sergeant major would have been a regular soldier on attachment to the battalion, so he would have retained his regular mm. army number. So the quartermaster sergeant was the senior volunteer soldier in the battalion when the Herefordshire Regiment started in 1908. Awarded for 12 years service, as I said. Uh, and in fact, his medal was awarded in 1912, so four years after the formation, because service in the Rifle Volunteer Corps counted towards the award of that medal. So obviously, Quartermaster Sergeant Moore had served in the Rifle Volunteers as well. So I think that it it's really goes mm. to the heart of the Herefordshire Regiment being a territorial battalion formed in 1908. And this was the man who was the senior, senior volunteer soldier. Now, as regards Sergeant Moore, he left the uh, territorial force before the beginning of the before the outbreak of the first world war but he re-enlisted in august 1914 and was given a new number so i suspect he was quite disappointed about that because <laughs> he was now number 1746 mm. uh, but he was also quite an old man at this stage so he never served overseas and he was transferred to the royal defense corps now, there was an organisation known as the Supplementary Companies, and these were volunteers who joined the Colours at the outbreak of the First World War, and they'd had previous military experience, either in the regulars, the militia, or the rifle volunteers. But they were too old for active service, but they had military experience. So they were retained in UK for UK Key Point Defence, and also they became uh, guards for prisoner of war camps. And certainly the Herefordshire Supplementary Company uh, was uh, used to guard foreign nationals who were detained in the Isle of Man. So again, it's there and part of the history, the wider history. Uh, he was renumbered in um, 1917 with the rest of the uh, territorial force and became 235419. He was discharged on the 7th of December 1919. So actually stayed in the, in the army for quite mm -hmm. some time after the war had finished. 
and he applied for a pension on the grounds of suffering from arthritis and was granted a 10% disability pension. He has no medal entitlement for the First World War, but was awarded the Silver War Badge, which was uh, awarded to those individuals who were discharged from the forces at a lower medical category than they enlisted at, and that downgrading was due to military service. So the senior man of the battalion in 1908 mm. served all through the First World War no medal entitlement. His only medal entitlement is a Territorial Force Efficiency mm. Medal. But I just think it sums up the territorial nature and the volunteer nature mm. of the battalion. Yeah. So that's my piece. That's wonderful, isn't it? And we often, when, we, when we're brought items into the museum, you know, by, um, by, by family uh, and, and by researchers, you know, we often stress how important the regimental number is, mm. Uh, mm. and uh, and once you once you've seen a roll and you start to work out enlistment dates, even yep. though you might not be able, there might not be many records for that particular soldier that whose medals we might be shown. We can take a good guess at when he enlisted by his regimental number, and and and, and that can unlock all sorts of information. Uh, absolutely, mm. and and in, to to illustrate that, just this morning I was looking at my sort of record about more and I've got two three five four one nine and I had that mm. that's the number he used on his pension application mm. form but I knew he'd enlisted in August 1914 so he must have had yeah. a, a, an earlier number mm. so I did a search and two three five four one eight was number 1745 mm. and number two three five four two zero was 1747 mm. so it's yep. got to be, that, gotta be he, that was his Absolutely. number 1746 so you can, so you can extrapolate that yeah. out of that that renumbered yeah. by but only by laying all those yeah. all, all those numbers together thank goodness for excel that sorts out yeah. <laughs> that you can do lots of different another sorts another interesting point you raised about having no medal but in the second world war of course he would have been awarded the defense medal yes he would have been mm. well and pro and the, the war, war medal, medal. And the war, war medal. medal and defense medal and in fact there is a w moore who was awarded the defense medal with the uh, the home guard in hereford but i don't know if it was mm. the same one yeah, so same family but, but if he was born in 1875 he would have been Hold on, you can probably see the quick maths. The cogs, he would have been 65 in 1940. Yeah, so limit, yeah. he could, have been, could have been in the yeah. home guard, yeah. Everyone else got a round of applause for theirs. Right, we go on to the second phase now, which is our favourite. The, the competitive uh, uh, a, a question, oh, right. This is, this is a bit like. And I think the... we're going reverse order this time, so, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll start. So. We all know about the troop ship, the Euripides. Yep. We don't do. we, Paul? We do, yep. Took the Herefords out to the Dardanelles. Well done. Of it in the museum. But what <laughs> actually do we know about the Euripides? Mm. Do you know when it was built? Danny? I'm going I'm to pull a random figure out of my head. It's, it's going to be in the 1900s because it was obviously... Because a lot of impressed cruise liners would use for that type of troop transport, weren't they? So, get, get, oh, you want to say, uh, 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 I'm going to choose a famous ship, 1908. Okay. <laughs> well, often these troop ships were pretty old tin buckets, weren't they? So, I'm going to say 1898. Wow. I think it was probably later than that. And I, I agree, I, I would go for about t t 2000 and. 
1912. Right, okay. Well, James, you're closest. July 1914. Sorry, no, not July. July was its maiden voyage. Uh, but it was built in um, Harland and Wolf in Belfast. Mm-hmm. And th- 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 it was launched on the 29th of Jan and completed on the 6th of June. Mm-hmm. It was uh, for the Aberdeen line for the Australia-New Zealand run, the UK-Australia-New Zealand run. Mm-hmm. That's pretty luxurious, then, really. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was, yeah. And, and it had cargo capability, but it had three classes, 140 first-class carriages. Carriages? Cabins, <laughs> three hundred and thirty-four th- third class and seven hundred and fifty steerage. So fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred capacity. So when you mm. think the the Herifords were a thousand yeah, strong, yeah. and there were elements of other units, mm. you can see how they all fitted on yeah. board. Yeah. More interestingly, it was on her maiden voyage to Australia and New Zealand when war broke out, mm. ah. and it was taken up as a troop ship on its from its maiden voyage and brought the first Australian troops mm. to Europe and the Middle East. <laughs> it then was used as a troop ship throughout the war, obviously taking the Herifords to, 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 to Gallipoli. So what happened then? Well, during the, second, during the interwar years, uh, during the Great Depression, it was laid up for about eight months. It was then modernised, taken back into use, during the Second World War, it was a, um, uh, a troop ship again and took part in quite a few convoys across the Atlantic. Mm. It was renamed the Akaroa, A-K-A-R-O-A, for some reason, and carried on after the Second World War, again, was used and it was refitted on the River Tyne and returned to service again on the Britain-New Zealand-Australia route, and it was sold for scrap in 1954. Wow. So it did 40 years service, service. two wars. Yeah, which which given, you know, that a lot of sister ships will have been sunk maybe in the First World War or indeed the the second. That's um, trashed by troops on board. I was going to (laughs) say, can you imagine just fitting out a new ship and then um, the the, 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 almost the second Especially the Aussies. (laughs) (laughs) They were known known to enjoy a drink. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Ships, uh, ships, of course, I don't know whether they were known as this at the time, but were, were known as stuffed. When they were yeah. ships taken up, up from, from trade, mm. yeah. but they retained their names. Mm. So, so, mm. so, for example, during the Falklands, Canberra was a, yeah. um, yeah. a QE two, mm. but they would still remain Canberra yeah. and yeah, QE two. Right. Whereas the Euripides, when it was taken up from, uh, when it was used, became known as um, His Majesty's troop ship. HTS, oh, Euripides. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a picture of the officers on board as well. We've got a copy of, uh, yeah. we've got a photograph of some of the officers yeah, on board, Imperial which we've tried to identify, yeah. trying to work out who they are from other photographs, mm. and it and it's not easy. But it's interesting. Some of them are in khaki drill. Mm. Some are in khaki surge. Plimsolls. But and... they've all got their deck <laughs> shoes on. Their plimsolls, <laughs> white plimsolls. Yeah. So anyway, you all you now know a little bit more about yeah. the Euripides, and, um, mm. and, and I'm keeping count. So James, I think you won that round. That was um, very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, my my question is also about ships. Funnily enough, when they arrested all the 
bit the people from uh, the Dönitz, the, the second and last Führer of the Third mm. and Last Reich, and they were all taken to a ship in Flensburg. My question is, what was the name of the ship? Oh, oh. there's a hand gone up. Went straight up. Pro Patria. Indeed, you're quite correct. <laughs> oh. yeah. But interestingly, what 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 happened to Dönitz uh, after his arrest? And subsequent trial at the war crime tribunal. Ooh, no, I, I know that when he was arrested, he was actually arrested twice because there was a mix-up, and they, they were all searched and strip searched. And there's a story saying that uh, that Donitz had seven pairs of underpants on because he had a weak bladder, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. always an interesting story. Mm. If it, you know, if if it's not fact, then it's uh, you know it's better than a fact. Indeed. <laughs> I've been currently researching a German officer called General Siegfried Westphal and reading his uh, his memoirs, and he actually mentions Dönitz in there. They they were all shoved into the uh, into the trial into the wing waiting for trials, and he mentions about going into the room and seeing these figures who he'd met in such grand uh, occasions beforehand, just being like shadows of men mm. and being in mm. tatty bits of uniform or in civilian suits. Mm. He had had most of his dress uniforms taken by US troops so Siegfried had been left with just his normal walking, normal suit, normal yeah. everyday suit. Mm. But, but I think, quite I think that all those that were arrested were flown down to the it's called? a military tribunal's commission. Military tribunal's um, commission. I remember the name of the castle now. And, and um, were held there yeah. awaiting the, the Nuremberg yeah. trials oh. and, and obviously Donitz was subject to the Nuremberg trials I, I think, I, I think I just, he was treated quite... Um, I, I don't think he got too harsh a sentence, did he? Well, age, I, I think and of was. course, if, if, if you'd... One of our previous um, chairman of the Friends, Martin Jolly, if you ever spoke to him, he was convinced that, um, that Donut should, uh, should have been hung because, for issuing the order that um, um, shipwrecked sailors should have been, been mm. fired on. Mm. No um, survivors picked up. Uh, but I don't think that that was ever proven, but certainly... Good old Martin believed it. Yeah. It was a lovely it, little what, story of, uh, about the capture of, of Dönitz and the government. In that when they were searching the, the premises, um, it is alleged that uh, some of the Herefordshire Regiment soldiers came across some German wrens who were having a shower. Oh. And, uh, oh. The story, <laughs> of course, can't be identified. But there are two, two versions, one of which said that the soldiers... Uh, d- d- r- w- went away hurriedly, <laughs> and the other version is that the ladies didn't mind. Yeah, yeah. I know um, sort of wrens in the Royal Navy are always very good looking, or they always appear to be, and the uniform <laughs> looks good on them. I don't know what wrens in the, the German Kriegsmarine would have been yeah. like. Though an interesting fact is because when they captured the mass naval stores, the British forces captured the mass naval stores, the German binoculars, especially were in, on mass use to the Royal Navy into the 60s and 70s because they're such superior quality. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm. That, that's why you see a lot of Kriegsmarine collectibles in the UK rather than in America because yeah. the yeah. British captured them, the German yeah. naval stores. Mm. Anyway, we come back. To, we haven't really answered your question, have we? <laughs> what, we, we I think we've been... Uh, Rabbit we've waffling <laughs> because none of us know the answer I, I, I think he got sentenced to 10 years yeah. and then went on to the, sort of the lecture circuit yeah i mean he certainly was a released prisoner mm. at some stage mm. but quite what his sentence mm. was and whatever i don't know yeah i think due to his advancing age especially like von runster that they were released early 
because they were such an advanced age, they weren't mm. a threat. And also, they were pre-war professional men. Mm. They were mm. not. They weren't drummed up by the party. That they were professional soldiers, like my my chap, Seafried Westphal, who I'm researching. He was released because they said, "Well, I'm I'm part of the officer corps. I'm not part of the party." Yeah. But mm. I don't know. If, I don't know if uh, if I don't. I think times change yeah. as well because quite a lot of the. Uh, the individuals that were um, uh, sentenced to death at Nuremberg and at the various trials, like um, like Piper, who was mm. um, the Arden offensive commander, who was sentenced to death, that their their sentences were were commuted mm. to a period of imprisonment, and even that period of imprisonment was was reduced mm. because times changed. Mm. And I think mm. the um, the French never the, the, the rising red <laughs> the rising red storm yeah. in the yeah. um, in the east. I think suddenly there, there was there was something else to uh, to, 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 to overshadow everything. I think Hess was the last last one to go, wasn't he? He he was got he had life, and I think he was the last one. In, yeah, it was, in the he was he was in Spandau in, in in Berlin, and I think the French, the Americans, the British, and the Russians all took time to guard him. I think for a, a week or a month at a time. The French, the British, and the Americans wanted him released because of his age. But the Russians refused, mm. so it, it, ultimately he died in. Um, but interesting about Hess, he he actually, I think, he came by through train through Hereford. Oh, because he's Abergavenny, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, he was imprisoned in a, in yeah. some way in Abergavenny, yeah. and and he was uh, yeah after he landed in yeah. Scotland yeah. and was and was lifted, he was transported mm. by train to Abergavenny. Yeah. So. Probably were, came through Harryford. Well, it's good to it's it's always good to bring uh, to to bring any discussion back to the local, Andy, and we can guarantee that you can do that for us. Well, so. thank you very much. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, thank you very much, James, for that mm, one. Right, yeah. uh, uh, what scores on the doors, Paul? Uh, so, to to my mind, um, this this is uh, one to James and one to Andy. Yes, so, yes. Uh, right. All to all to play for. Hunger Games style final. We, we we might have to have some sort of um, if we all get one point each, we might have to have, have a some sort of terrible tie break. But anyway, let's um, let's not worry about <laughs> right. that. Right. Shall I go next? Yeah, over to you then, Paul. It's related again to the drum major's sash. Uh, on there, I talked about um, I talked about the, the battle honours, but I think maybe maybe perhaps a simpler question to begin with. Let's uh, mm. get to that point in the in the afternoon. Yes, isn't yes. It? Um, so the standard marching pace in the British Army is 116 beats per minute. But of course, we know, or do we know, what the what the quick march pace is? For rifle regiments. Well, I think James should answer this one since he's marched. 120 paces of the minute. 140? It's 140, isn't it? I think. I thought it was 120. I'm saying out of this, being ex Air Force, the only drills I know are pneumatic and electric. So I'm saying out of this. That was my opener, really. But to do with those. So are you having two questions? I am. I am. I am. Greedy. I'm having two questions. Well, we need an odd number of questions. Ah, right, okay. To try and tease out the competition a bit. Those battle honours on that sash. It got me thinking about how they were awarded, and there was a committee set mm. up immediately after the war to, to to sort those out. And the Herefordshire Regiment were awarded fifteen battle off honours quite quickly from the First World from War. From the First yeah. World War, but in nineteen twenty four, they were awarded two more, and I wonder if anybody mm. might know what those two further battle honours were. Just, just uh, sort of. Offbeat a little bit mm. here, but were battle honours always awarded for victories, or or, or were, were if if there was, you know, where the British lost mm. was, were, would a battle 
honour still be awarded? Would it be an honour to lose? Well, I th- well, France, <laughs> France, yeah. France, nineteen forty is a oh, right. honour. Yeah. Um, uh, for the Second World War. Um, well, I suppose all of Gallipoli in some ways as well. Yeah. But on the regimental colour, we've got South Africa on there as an unofficial. Is it an official battle on? Because you've got to, within each regiment, you've got a king's colour or the queen's colour, and you've got a regimental colour. And we've in the Herefords, we've got the regimental colour with the South Africa. Yeah. Well, of course, on. that was brought in to the Herefords from the Rifle Volunteers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those rare mm. rarities within yeah. the, the army. Anyway, I, I, I hope I've distracted you long <laughs> enough, Paul, to forget to, what the to, question to give was. You some thinking quick, time. Google, so, quick Google. So, so in 1924, two more First World War battle honours were added to the to the Hereford Regiment's tally, and and I, I, I like them because they're actually there's uh, there's a link between these between these two. Hmm. A link. So I would think probably one is for the beginning of the war and one the end of the war. It's pretty warm, yeah. So, with the beginning of the war, it would have been Gallipoli, and so Suvla landing at Suvla, landing at Suvla. Well done, James. Oh, well done. Uh, right, okay. So the end of the war. So that would be the Flanders, the hundred days. So many road. When they went down to fight with the Americans and the French. Oh, what um, was that called? Um, um, Marne. Is it Marne? It is Battle of the Marne, nineteen eighteen. <sighs> and that was that was the first one that they uh, that they got when they landed in in France. But I think possibly there was the question as to whether that landing at Suvla itself counted as a mm. as a battle because they already had Suvla yeah. as a uh, as a. So battle. they've got Suvla and the landing at Suvla. Suvla. That's right. I should really know yeah. this. <laughs> uh, and then the Battle ah. of Marne. I think, as you say, Andy, because they were they were they were sort of in support of American and French troops. I wonder yeah. whether that didn't quite make the committee. Yeah. Um, first yeah. round, but no, nineteen twenty four. There's a. There's a, a wonderful a little newspaper article um, speaking at the annual smoking concert and prize distribution of the Ross B Company of the 1st Hereford Regiment. Colonel H. Pattersall, Colonel in Command, said that only a few days ago they'd heard that the Hereford Regiment was now entitled to two more honours for war service. And that's right, confirmed as the landing at Suvla and the Battle of the Marne, oh, 1918. We don't have smoking concerts anymore, do we? Uh, no, we don't have smoke breaks <laughs> either. <laughs> not, not allowed, to, not allowed <laughs> to anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, well done, Paul. Scores on the door? Um, two, two each, I think. Two, two, yeah, yeah, we're not... Yeah. We're oh, not fighting, fighting neck and neck, James. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Might have to throw a curveball. Right, curve oh, another curveball. Uh, <laughs> a rabbit warren. Yeah. So my question is, during the First and Second World War, Mm-hmm. What foodstuff widely issued to soldiers could only be eaten on the orders of an officer? Ooh. My immediate thinking was rum, but then you said eaten. Then you said eaten. Foodstuff. Well, some would consider rum a necessity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a necessity of war. But that required a doctor's approval as well, I think. Yes, I think it did, yeah. yeah. And I think the Royal Navy stopped the tops in the 70s. Um, we, we had stocks of rum when I was um, a junior officer. And we went on exercise once, and the OC authorised or issued uh, a tot of rum to everyone. Uh, he then went back, and the commanding officer, the quartermaster, went absolutely mad about it. And uh, he had got a medical doctor's, uh, a medical authorisation to do this. 
and he was invited to pay for the rum which had been consumed and to, <laughs> to restock it. I think he possibly made a contribution yeah. to the Army Benevolent Fund or someone as well. But uh, yeah, mm. so that's that's the only time that I personally have been involved in a yeah, rum issue. issue. Yeah. Anyway, so, so, sorry, so, you, so, said so you said so, it's not rum. So it's, it's not, not rum. It's not rum. rum. So let's go yeah. First World War. First World War, what foodstuff was issued to every soldier but only to be issued on the, or eaten on the orders of an oh, officer? I think I know this. It was iron rations, wasn't it? Iron the rations. Oh, rations. Yeah. For yeah. bully bonus point, what made up the iron ration? Well, <laughs> Oxo cubes. Bully, chocolate? No. Bully, no. bully beef? It was meat, tinned meat. Yeah. So it could be bully beef or whatever turned up. The um, infamous, the infamous hard tack. Yeah. Ah, biscuit right. brown. Yeah. yeah, biscuit or biscuit browns of those yeah. of you who eat current ration packs. But also salt was in there as well. Right. Just salt, bis- yeah, salt, biscuit, meat, and also you'd fit in there anything left over. So if you had a bit of a carrot stub or something like that, then you can make up a quick bit of food. Mm. So obviously advances of technology. The Second World War. What emergency food stuff could only be eaten on the orders of an officer? Well, he is on a follow-up as well, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so first of all, we had tinned meat and biscuit. In the second, so it's an war, iron ration. It's, an, it's, it's what, not what, an iron ration. Oh, right, okay. So it's, it's an emergency food stuff. So it's the same kettle of fish. Fish? No. <laughs> <laughs> it came in a small. T- uh, give you. I'll give you a little clue. It came in a small tin, the size of a tobacco tin. Uh, air crew rations. Air crew Where? emergency rations. Ah, emergency. Right, okay. Every soldier. Was issued a small tin and right. mar- marked up, and it was embossed on the tin as golden lacquered tin. It said emergency rations, and inside this emergency ration tin was a bar of chocolate. Now, this wasn't like your Cadbury's chocolate or your Fra- your Fray's chocolate. It was actually a high e- high energy, high sugar content chocolate. The Germans had a similar version, but it was high caffeinated coffee uh, chocolate, known as a Shocka Cola. The British rations had a small tin, and uh, even I know speaking to veterans. They refused even at the end of the war to open the tin because it had been drummed into them from day one. Yeah. You could only open yeah. this tin on the orders of an officer. <laughs> That's interesting, though. You should mention about um, the German uh, high-caffeinated chocolate. Uh, cola yeah. Well, cola. Because during the, second, during the 30s and the Second World War, Germany could not get Coca-Cola. So they introduced their own fizzy drink, Fanta. Yeah. And Fanta was an invention yeah. of, the, of, of Nazi... Germany, yeah. yeah, which is you know, yeah. so you can get the they can get the syrup, yeah. mm-hmm. you can get the band of the syrup. Well, <laughs> I think that um, really we need now someone to decide the scores on the doors. Well, I mean, I think I got the point for the first world war, didn't I? But then did we um, yeah. for the for the for those iron rations? But, but, then, yeah. but then who got that? So who was who got that no, subsequent got the emergency oh, ration? Yeah. Well, should we call it a draw? We'll have to. I, sh- I think give Andy the point for, due to his natty story about rum. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. we just want. To, we, we we're just trying to work out who we're going to make wear this sparkly hat. I know. We? We, we we've been trying to lose. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, I I think that um that that's been a a, a super uh, podcast. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. We've certainly enjoyed talking so, yeah. about nothing and everything. <laughs> And of course, it illustrates the whole range of activities that there were, which the regiment undertook, and some of the range of things which are on display in the museum, which all builds up to the history and the ethos of the regiment. So um, I think probably on that note, we will sign off and we will 
we wish you all a happy Christmas. We're we're not going to sing, are we? No, I think that, that <laughs> silence said we're not going to sing. <laughs> so uh, we we will wish you all a happy Christmas and a peaceful New Year. Uh, and it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Happy Christmas. Everybody. Happy Christmas and goodbye. <laughs>